a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Hello and welcome to Discovery. I'm Brennan Morgan and tonight we'll find out that Discovery isn't all about science. Sometimes we throw in a bit of culture and sometimes, like tonight, we get our ethical hands dirty and ask difficult questions, such as, should there be scientific research in the military? Has anything good come from scientific research in the military? And what would the military be like without science? To add to the diversity of the discussion, we're bringing in the team from Groundswell. But first up, here's the news with Chris. A study in the Chile's southernmost Patagonian forest has confirmed that trees gather most of their calcium and other metal nutrients from the air rather than from the deep soil and rock, which is what I always thought they got them from. Dr. Martin Kennedy from the University of California, Riverside, and colleagues used a strontium isotope to trace the uptake of metals from the Chilean atmosphere and from the Chilean soil. They found that the dominant southern beech tree took 90% of its strontium, which closely follows the uptake of calcium, from atmospheric sources. The results appear in today's Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Said Dr. Clive Carlisle of the CSIRO Forestry and Forest Products, they've used a neat technique to demonstrate there is not much intake from the deep soil. Dr. Carlisle is involved in a collaborative research agreement with a Chilean plantation company. Weathering of rock particles in the deep soil was previously thought to be the main source of essential nutrients, such as calcium, potassium and magnesium, but foresters have suspected that nutrients are also gathered from the air and rain. Dr. Carlisle explained, It has certainly been known for a long time that atmospheric inputs were important. The US team mimicked a 10 millimetre rain event by showering the Chilean forest with an isotope of strontium, which is taken up by living tissues in the same way that calcium is. The forests had not been exposed to acid rain or other outside influences. Over 404 days of observation, the scientists took samples comparing the forest's uptake from the shallow topsoil and from the deep soil. They found that the tracer had been leached from the topsoil, which meant that the trees sourced their calcium from the rain that had landed on the soil. Well, good news, there's been another oil spill near the Galapagos Islands. Yes, a small barge spilled about 2,000 gallons of diesel on Thursday this week near Puerto Villamil, home to turtles, iguanas and sea lions. This happened after strong currents thrust the fuel tank that the boat was carrying overboard. You'd think they would tie these things down. Fortunately, in the short term at least, all of the uh, exotic wildlife around the islands have been spared, but scientists on Friday said that it was just a little too soon to tell whether or not there were going to be any real long-term effects. Now, physicists have, in the past, slowed light down to a crawling pace and even made it look a little bit as if light waves were going backwards in time. Well, now some Spanish physicists have shown how the photons in a beam of laser light might be able to condense into light droplets with certain liquid-like properties. Laser light passing through a non-linear optical medium can undergo self-focusing. The very presence of the intense light with its strong electric and magnetic fields can modify the material's index of refraction, causing the material to act a bit like a lens. 
Now, at some point, the streams of laser light making up the beam would have converged sufficiently to form a condensed state, in analogy with the forces which create liquid drops from a gas cloud. These droplets of light would not be at rest, but would continue to move at the speed of light. Humberto Michnell and his colleagues at universities in Chile and Sweden, there seems to be lots of Chilean news tonight, argue that the light condensates could be considered as droplets because they have these properties in common with liquids. They've got a surface tension, which is the elastic resistance to being deflected, and they can sustain vortices like those in superfluids. If the theory could be demonstrated in the lab, the light droplets might be useful in future optical computers as a means of carrying robust bits of information. And finally, here's a story that will appeal to all the lazy and lethargic out there. Having a bit of a nap is good for the memory, according to a new United States study. And according to an Australian nap expert, short naps are the best of all. A study from Harvard University advocates sleep for improved mental, uh, mental performance. The study published in this month's Nature Neuroscience found that mental performance improves after a nap in the middle of the day. But Dr. Saul Gilbert from the Centre for Sleep Research at the University of South Australia, now that's a place that I wouldn't mind working, was surprised at the length of the naps that the US scientists recommended. They recommended for between 30 minutes and one hour. Said Saul Gilbert, power naps are only beneficial if they're 10 to 15 minutes longer. If you sleep longer than that, well, we all know what happens, you wake up feeling groggy. The US researchers waited for one hour after study participants woke up from a nap before asking them to complete the test test tasks, and this is where the results are a little misleading, cautioned Dr. Gilbert. That time allows the subjects to get over their sleep inertia, he explained. Previous Australian research has shown that shorter naps are beneficial because they are too short for the sleepers to go into that restful and deep sleep called slow wave sleep. If you want a quick pick-me-up to make your general performance better, it's better after a 10 to 15 minute lap nap than if you spend 10 to 15 minutes doing nothing. Dr. Gilbert explained, and it's certainly better than if you sleep for half an hour or more. U.S. researchers postulated that sleep allows information to be consolidated to memory, and Dr. Gilbert agrees with that theory. I think of it, he said, as the brain defragging itself a bit like a computer. Having a longer nap means that the subjects were falling into a stage of deep sleep called slow wave sleep, which the U.S. researchers believe to be responsible for memory consolidation.
country. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Here's Lachlan Watmore. Thank you, Bernie. When Tim asked me to do a piece on the good, the bad, and the ugly in military science, one enormous question immediately rose to mind, and that was, of course, where to begin. The, the amount of, uh, of R&D and scientific re research that's been done as a result of military efforts is just enormous. But I think I've got a couple of examples here uh, which might pin down a couple of examples of good, bad, and ugly. To begin with, uh, I think the best thing to come out of military research has been battlefield medicine. It's a well-known fact that casualty rooms in hospitals all over the world have taken an enormous leaf out of the books of people who have been on the battlefield and have had to have treated trauma cases very, very quickly. Uh, along with that, you can also... Uh, the evacuation of personnel by helicopter uh, has found a lot of applications in the uh, civilian sector. If you'll see the Westflight helicopter uh, flying around the Blue Mountains, picking people out of uh, uh, ravines and things where they've fallen down or plucking people out of the sea, chances are that they've taken an enormous leaf out of medivac helicopters during the Vietnam War. Uh, along with that, there's been a whole heap of actual medical um, uh, advances <coughs> and um, a variety of, of different drugs have come out. <coughs> Sorry, folks. Improvements have been made to malarial medicines and sometimes it's gone a little bit astray. During the Burma campaign during World War II, DDT was sprayed all over the place to reduce the uh, insect population. Twenty years later, it turned out that DDT is quite carcinogenic and has been taken off, so it can actually backfire. Along with battlefield medicine, it also includes computer technology. Uh, information technology has been an enormous part of uh, military research. Um, initially, it was uh, developed for code breaking in Bletchley Park and various other places around the world, again during World War II. It was also been applied to weapon systems, navigation systems, uh, the planning of campaigns. Uh, Alan Turing, uh, the inventor of the Turing machine, uh, frequently regarded as a precursor of the modern computer, was uh, a resident of Bletchley Park during the war and played an enormous role in the breaking of the German Enigma code. Along with that, it also included advances in aviation, uh, jets and helicopters being the best uh, result. Uh, the development of the jet engine was uh, considerably slower than the development of the prop-driven prop aircraft, uh, but once the jet had been put into service, of course, first militarily, uh, the engine could then be applied to the civilian sector. And as heli helicopters I've mentioned before, it's, it's very effective medivac um, techniques. I would also, perhaps surprisingly, include rocketry in one of the things, one of the, the bits of military technology that has uh, actually had a, a benefit in the civilian sector. We at Discovery love to talk about people blasting themselves and various things into space. Uh, well, some people around here do, and um, you know, I love to talk about space probes, and I love to, and folks love to talk about space shuttles and everything that goes up into the ether and, and looks at various things astronomical. Virtually every American and almost every Russian and by extension Chinese and to a lesser extent French rocket is a direct descendant of the V-2 developed by Werner von Braun during the war. Um, yes, I know the song. And um, the V-2 was a revolting weapon. It simply was designed to go straight up, travel along a certain distance and then come straight back down in a certain area. It had very little military application. It was purely used as a terror weapon. It was so fast it could not be shot down, unlike its predecessor, the V-1 Doodlebug, which could be shot down. V-2 could not be shot down because it was supersonic, and it was a, a revolting weapon and didn't stop until the Allies actually overran the, uh, the launching sites. 
So, uh, the, after the war, the Americans uh, took one bunch of German scientists and the Russians took another bunch of German scientists and as Werner von Braun loved to say, yes, our Germans are better than their Germans and they began their respective space programs and we've got the space programs that we know today. Very, very little of this would have got to the stage where it's at in so short a space of time if it hadn't been for German rocket scientists during the war. Not that I'm condoning what they did, but the long-term effect has provided us with the space industry. So that's about all I want to say about the good stuff about military uh, technology. What I'd now like to go towards is the bad stuff, of which, of course, the list is so long. You know, it goes down your arm and, and halfway down your leg. Uh, the uh, the rocketry uh, situation didn't just kickstart the space program, it also kickstarted an ICBM nuclear program. Uh, John Glenn was blasted into space on top of an Atlas rocket which had been specifically designed for the delivery of nuclear payloads. Uh, so is the Redstone. Along with that, uh, one of the worst things to come out in, in the modern day, uh, the worst things to come out of uh, the war was cheap, mass-produced small arms. In 1947, Anton Kalashnikov developed probably the best-known and, and best-regarded assault rifle ever done, the AK-47. There are now more copies of the AK-47, I understand, than pretty much any other firearm in history. Along with that, you've got revolting weapons such as napalm, which is developed by Lewis Pfizer in Harvard University. Napalm is a mixture of petrol and sometimes benzene and some sort of thickener. Uh, the initial thickener, I believe, was uh, some sort of uh, jelly, and then they changed to polystyrene. Uh, the object is that the thickener acts as a jelly which flows fast. The whole uh, commensal flows fast under pressure, and when it hits the target, it sticks to it. The whole thing is, of course, ignited by a particular detonator. There's a common misconception that napalm is actually burns in air. Just simple exposure to oxygen will start it burning. That's not actually true. It does actually need a detonator to get it up to a specific activation energy. Once it's there, though, it's going to burn very, very nicely all on its own, and the jelly effect doesn't actually make the whole thing flow and reduce the burning of it so the whole thing doesn't just burn up before it hits the target but will also actually make it stick to the target. Now, originally it was possible to put out the fire by jumping into a creek or a stream or something like that. So then during the Vietnam War, because far too many Viet Cong were jumping into streams, they added phosphorus, which makes it impossible. You can jump into a stream and still require burning. Uh, along with that, I'd just like to mention that the Gatling, uh, that the uh, machine gun was invented by Richard Jordan Gatling, the first uh, machine gun was made in 1862, and is again one of those other revolting weapons. Um, just along with that, just before I wind up, I did want to talk briefly about how military situations, strategic situations, can lead to the pushing of R&D and therefore the science. Uh, during the 1930s, naval air power was worked up in anticipation of a huge naval battle between Japan and America in the Pacific, and once the war came, the the technology was in place. I've just come off the net a couple of hours ago after reading a thing by Stephen M. Younger, the Associate Laboratory Director for Nuclear Weapons at Los Alamos National Laboratory, with a very prickly feeling in the back of my neck. Basically, he was talking about the position of nuclear weapons, the, the role that nuclear weapons might play in 21st century technology, in 21st century conflict, and was alluding to the fact that you have to look at the strategic situation of the war in order to push the R&D and therefore the science. Therefore, if you are anticipating, for example, an enormous nuclear confrontation or an enormous nuclear standoff between massive superpowers, you'll need to build enormous weapons. But if you're anticipating a rogue state or some sort of terrorist state or unstated terrorist outfit with some sort of uh, truck run trundling along through the Siberian hinterland that you know is there but you want to take it out with a nuclear weapon, you need a small yield, extremely accurate nuclear weapon. I could talk all day about nuclear strategy, and I just might, but I'd better not because Tim's giving me the wind-up. So... That's all I've got to say about the good, the bad, and the ugly in military science, and we'll be right back soon. The Groundswell team have now joined us for a discussion, and playing devil's advocate in this 
discussion is Lachlan. So, should the military conduct science research? Well, I was going to say, it, it conducts science research? How much sort of dosh is put up for this research? Maybe someone from Groundswell can answer this. You can speak to Let's just have a look at some of the percentages, shall we? Um, the U.S., these figures are quite old, but I, they still hold water. Uh, the U.S. spends about three quarters of its research and development science budget on, um, on weapons, basically, and have a guess at how much they spend on medicine. Mm. Tell me. Deal less than yeah, around two percent. That's the total budget for That's science research in the U.S. Yes, three quarters of it. The total budget or the total military budget? The total, total government, government budget. Okay, sure. Yes, right. fairly impressive. Mm. Yeah, um, other countries fare a little bit, a bit worse regarding military budgets. Um, the U.S. takes the cake there. Um, I understand that uh, during the Reagan administration, every single tax dollar collected west of the Mississippi went towards defence. Oh, I'm sure half the country. Half oh, yeah. In fact, it's something that's, that's what been... What do they get for this? Yeah, what exactly. do they do with this, this money? All right, are they just mm -hmm. developing weapons? Are they developing all kinds of science? No, they'd, they'd be developing everything to do with the, the military situation. Now, obviously, yeah, weapons and weapons systems are obviously going to have a huge impact there. And you guys jump in if you disagree. But I, I, I think that it's not totally weapons. I think the military budget goes towards, for one, paying the living of soldiers to, so that they can feed their wives and families. And um, all the rest of it, they've also got an enormous uh, medical research facility within the military. In fact, I think there's one for every single military service there. So some research does actually come out. I think out. what I mean is what kind of science does the military use? Does it yeah. do all science with that money? I think so. I think that's the implication. Uh, one thing is though, that the money just does not go towards this public use, whether it's whether it you regard the military as evil or not, or yeah. a mix. Yeah, yeah. It does not. It's not for public use. It goes to companies like Boeing and other um, uh, contractors that the U.S. employs, and that seeps in. These billions of dollars seep in to private hands, uh, and then they can use this research, which was for supposed to be the whether you believe it or not, the betterment of the country mm -hmm. um, for their own uh, private usage. Okay. Um, hmm. Hard to play devil's advocate with that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> very hard indeed. Uh, so, I think, so, I mean, I think it's a very, very valid point. Yeah, basically you do have this blurring here. It's yeah. not... It's not uh, you can't isolate it and say, this is the military, is it good or bad? Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. And and would you say that the you know six maybe seven uh, figure salary that's being paid to the head of Boeing or General Electric or, or General Dynamics or Grumman or any of the variety of enormous American weapons and uh, weapon systems designers, um, you know, is that is that actually justified for someone who's the CEO of a company which basically makes things that kill people? Um, there's a certain moral question there, I suppose. And I think I, I get what you say about that money not going into the public sector, but rather into the private sector. Um, would you put any credence, though, into the employment? Uh, this, is, this is really playing devil's advocate, but putting, keeping in mind that, shall we call it the military-industrial complex, let's not mince words, uh, does employ an enormous number of Americans and, and people from other nations. Uh, would you put any you know, stock into that? No, pun intended. But perhaps if they spent more money um, on their health sector, they would have more employment in the health sector, which could then you know, replace the, the jobs that might be lost. Yeah. If you were to scale down the amount of money put into defence, okay. I think I think we need to also have a look at some of those great things that you mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. 
in your in your little spiel there the good things that are being done in the military like yeah. medicine um, we have to ask whether that money that those billions of dollars that have been that's you know three quarters of the military budget being uh, channeled into if that had been channeled into healthcare yeah. health whether those uh, medicines would have been developed anyway um, same with a lot of other things you mentioned uh, also using using medical using stuff uh, from war for uh, civil purposes uh, there's an ethical question there as well especially when it comes from the enemy there's a lot of good debate happening here so perhaps we'll just break for a moment and be back soon So, say I'm a recent PhD graduate, I've done some really good work, but no one's going to pay me to do, you know, the next bit of my research. And then along comes someone from the military says, yeah, sure, we'll give you money, but we're going to own it afterwards, and, uh, you know, we'll pay you to develop it, but it's got to be used in the military. What's my answer? Should I, as a scientist, should we have it like an ethical thing that goes, well, yes, no, I don't know. What type of research? Well... So it's health-related, yeah. but um, could be used for maybe germ warfare or something scary like that. Could be used to save the human race. I think I think the whole problem there is systemic, really. I mean, if there was more funding for science as a whole and not military science, then that scientist wouldn't have to take that. That's uh, one point. Another point is that I believe that the way that the military get around this psychologically so that scientists don't know that they're working on, you know, a weapon of mass destruction is that they're... Uh, compartmentalized basically the weapon is broken up into small units and so each scientist works on a different bit and they don't actually know what they're working towards it could be it could be you know something really socially constructive yeah. it's actually very unscientific not to have that uh, interconnection yeah uh, that's very, true yeah sort of yeah. anti-science in a way yeah um 
Which is, and that's exactly what they do in Los Alamos, you were saying before. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they, you yeah. go in Los Alamos and you have your little department, mm-hmm. and a lot of people outside know what you do, and even a lot of people inside the same hallway don't know what you do, and that's how they like to keep it. Um, for the reasons people in charge want to know what everyone does, but don't want them to know, I think, yeah, is the sure. idea. I, I just wanted to mention one thing. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the ugly uh, side of science. Um, just before I do, did you want to say something there? I just, I just wanted to say that um, in terms of the money that's going in as well and the results you get out of it, mm-hmm. um, if it's going into defence, we're not going to be able to see what these results are. There's no transparency. Yeah. Um, unlike if it was going into something like health or you know even education, we would see the results. It's kind of like big business in a way. Anyway. Yeah. Well, the two go very well together, don't they? <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> what were you going to say, Lot? Well, it's just uh, just to, to kind of wrap it up, Tim. Um, I, I talked about the good and the bad, but I didn't actually mention the ugly in my thing. There was one thing. Oh, surely that. that's George Bush. Oh uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Touche. Closely followed by Ronald Reagan uh, with, with with George yeah, with George Bush's dad. Yeah, I was just about to say. The, the most ugly thing I find in all of military stuff, and it's not necessarily a scientific or technological thing, it's the glorification of weapons themselves. How soldiers go marching down the street with fixed bayonets, and the bayonets are all shiny and they're meant to dazzle the, like, you know, Christmas baubles. Bayonets are sticking in someone's guts, twisting and then pulling out, preferably taking a chunk of intestine with you. Um, we love samurai swords. You know, samurai swords are basically for killing, but we hang them up over a, a thing. Um, you see a picture of a soldier, and he's inevitably got an armor light rifle in his hand. Look at me, I've got a great big gun. I just wanted to say that I think it's rather revolted. Great. Thanks to Lachlan and the ground style team for that mind-blowing discussion. Thank you. Our pleasure. edition of Discovery. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us via email at discoveryradio at yahoo.com.au. That's discoveryradio at yahoo.com.au. Contributing to the program were Chris Stewart, Lachlan Watmore and the Groundswell team. Discovery has been produced by Tim Baines in the studios of 2SCR Sydney with technical support from Gina Satori. Discovery is broadcast nationally via Comrade Sat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Again, join us for more science next week on Discovery.